so starting the year is difficult and uh, we don't like to do too much at the start of the year because we break for a few weeks over Christmas and New Year's and whatnot and then we never know if anyone's going to come back and every year we kind of expect, you know, that maybe we'll get a long, an extended break but then everyone shows up again. So, you know, we, well done to you, well played, yes. Uh, we thought that at the start of this year, we'd just do like a little mini-series, but you know how these things go sometimes, they grow. Uh, no one trusts us anymore when we say that. But we um, are going to be talking about um, becoming a community of memory, and that uh, is for a couple of reasons. One, because when we talk about series and speaky things and discussions that we do, these similar themes keep on showing up that seem to kind of ingrain themselves in our community that we talk about over and over again. Sometimes it feels like we're doing the same message over and over again. Um, And it'd be really nice to have some kind of like, I guess, community awareness around what these themes are so that uh, they're easier to remember together. And then secondly, we also as a community let things slip pretty easily. So we did this exercise with our co-creators, which are um, kind of like, people who have committed to stick around to this place, which is a very brave move, um, you know, because there's always better options. And uh, we talked about some of the series that we discussed over the last few years and uh, tried to get people to recollect bits and pieces from them. And we had all these people, like all this feedback of people going, oh, that's right, we talked about that, that was really, oh, I found that quite life-changing, but I totally forgot that we even talked about that. Uh, that's how life-changing it was. And... <laughs> And we thought it would be really nice as a community um, to help people who are joining our community rather than going, we talked about this thing, go and listen to nine months, you know, 1,300 um, podcasts on why God didn't kill Jesus. Um, that it would be much easier if we had some process for, um, I, I guess, using creeds or prayer or art or something, we're not sure what yet, of being able to remember the things that sit at the core of this community. And we've got this thing called Shaping Stories, which we've used for quite a while, Um, but it seems to be the kind of thing that people read on exploring our community for the first time and then forget about completely. Could anyone name five of our Shaping Stories? No, I don't know if I could either. Uh, No, I can because I wrote most of them. But um, but we we use them kind of as a reference point um, for some of the things that we're about, but they're not really sticking very well. So we thought it'd be really nice if we could build into our practice um, some of these themes. And we're not quite sure how best to do that yet. That's your problem, not mine. So what we thought we'd do is we'd just spend a few weeks on a few of these emerging themes that are coming up. And as we go through them, if people, um, as a community, if we can find ways of potentially remembering them, be it through creed or prayer or art or song or otherwise, then that would be a really nice exercise to do together. And for those of you who've joined more recently, um, it might be a good way on playing catch-up. And then you you won't even have to have suffered from sort of five years of this church. Um, You can just, you know, take a free pass and um, glean all the wisdom that's come from this community, if you can call it that. So we thought um, the first one that would would talk about was uh, was seeing the unseen, and uh, Rod wrote a, a pithy little line last week that um that we began using, embracing God's upside down kingdom. You notice that the G is in brackets because you know we like to separate ourselves from the monarchy a little and move towards family, but you know 
we seek to, we seek to see and honor those who are often unseen and dishonored. And last week we discussed that in the context of seeing and acknowledging um, the indigenous people of this land and talking about as a community moving towards a place where we're able to um, listen better. Uh, and that's one of our focuses for this year. Um, and listening is a really key part of this, of, of seeing the unseen, of hearing, um, of practicing the art of listening and hearing people's stories before we make grand declarations um, about them to take time to truly um, hear people's experiences and to treat them as a human to be encountered and not a problem to be solved. And more recently as a community, we've um, spent time trying to do this with a queer community and we're really lucky today because um, Tish, who's one of our wonderful humans, is um, going to talk about seeing the unseen from a queer perspective. So yeah, we'd like you to welcome Tish. We don't usually clap, but you know, it's really nice. <laughs> And then she can pretend not to like it, but actually really enjoy it. So, yeah. Thanks, Tish. Good morning. Um, I'd like to just begin by also acknowledging the traditional owners of the land um, and pay my respects to the elders past, present and future and acknowledge it was never ceded. Uh, and this will be relatively brief because it's hot, because pride is on, and also because I moved houses and had a wedding on this week. So my preparation was minimal, unlike the amount of boxes I moved. Um, but that being said, it's my pleasure to present this hodgepodge of thoughts this morning, um, and I'm grateful that you're, this is a Christian community, because if I say anything too stupid, you're just really going to have to forgive me. Um, so I want to talk about seeing the unseen, particularly in relation to my experience of being a queer Christian, and also, you know, it's Pride Weekend, so it fits. Um, so... <laughs> I want to start with the story, and it's a slightly embarrassing one. Um, so I want you to picture a year seven Tish. Um, she went by Katisha then her full name, which means God's pure and precious gift, and she was definitely on the pure side. In primary school, the kids used to find it fun to try to bribe her to swear. She was just like that kind of Christian kid. But now she's in year seven, and she really loves WOW worship CDs. Does anyone else remember them? <laughs> judging by the chuckles, yes. Um, and for those of you who don't remember or aren't familiar with them, wow worship CDs were like so fresh hits CDs, but like for Christians. Um, they were the latest and greatest contemporary Christian music collated for you in one CD, and I loved them. Um, I loved them so much that when my year seven teacher told us that we could make like mixed CDs to bring into class to play, guess what was on mine? 95% of it was songs from WOW Worship CDs and about 5% was U2. Because, like, they're basically Christian too. Um, long story short, I was a super nerdy Christian kid. Um, now, as bad as I might have been at fitting in with my high school peers, which was at times pretty bad, um, I was excellent at fitting in in the Christian world. Um, it came naturally to me because I'd been exposed to it for so many years. I knew the language, the songs, the rules, and I was a model pastor's daughter. And as a pastor's daughter, I was in, in the inner circle. I knew the rules and the rituals. And then after high school, I went on to do a Christian gap year. Um, and then after that, I joined the largest Christian group at my university. I feel like you can sense a theme going on here. Um, I rose the ranks of that group. I led Bible studies and prayer groups and coordinated events. I became a leader within that group. 
I was good at fitting in. And the truth is that it was also a world that I loved and that I still do love. And at the time, it was my whole world just about. And I'm not telling you to brag about what a good Christian I was, because no one really finds it cool or bragworthy, but <laughs> rather, it's context that I want you to understand that inner circle Christian version of Tish that you may not be familiar with. And like I said, that particular Christian world was my whole world. And so it wasn't until that world shattered and was taken away from me that I was forced to see that I, like many others, could not belong in that world as it was. Year 7 Katisha grew up into a really strong woman who happens to also be really gay and okay with that. Unfortunately, my old world was often not okay with that. And so being pushed out of places in which I'd previously flourished, it was uncomfortable and even extremely painful. But now I'm really grateful for it. And I'm not grateful in some vague, everything happens for a reason way. That's fine too, though. That's your thing. Um, I'm grateful (laughs) because being pushed to the margins made me turn around and see who else was there with me, who else didn't fit in. And I worry sometimes that if I'd never been pushed out, I would never have seen and known the amazing people that I do now. So if we don't go to the margins, how are we to see those who are usually unseen? Now, I'm not suggesting that we all be gay and get pushed to the margins like I was, but totally up for it. Um, But I am suggesting that we should all stand in solidarity with those on the margins and strive to see them better. And standing in solidarity is often costly. Standing in solidarity can mean that you too are ousted to the margins. Pastors and leaders have often been fired or had to step down for being too vocal in their support of us. But I also think that pushing ourselves out of comfortable inner circles and into the messy and beautiful margins is transformative. When we meet people on the edges, I think it is us that is actually transformed. And how can we not be when we hear stories of those on the margins, stories of strength, survival, of love, of a million other things, it cannot help but change the way that we see the people there and consequently, I think, our worldviews as well. And honestly, I think that's where we find Jesus also. Is my, like, tempo okay? Great. Um, And so the queer community is on the margins in the vast majority of churches and Christian community and often society as a whole. But my goodness, the church is missing out on some great people. We're often referred to as an abstract issue, and that's probably one of the kinder ways that we're referred to. What's your opinion on the gay issue? Really love the quotation marks. Um, It's a question I've heard thrown around so many times. But when we frame people as an abstract issue, we fail to see them as people. And when people are issues, they become something to be dealt with rather than people to be seen and loved. And when people are issues, we're not fully embracing their humanity, their gifts, and their complexities. When we see people on the margins, though, we are following Jesus who did the same Jesus stood in solidarity with those on the margins and it did cost him. Jesus had an amazing way of engaging with people who lived on the margins and encountering them as people, not simply by the label that they were assigned by society. Mary, as a woman, is encouraged to sit at his feet and learn rather than go back into the kitchen. Lepers, the untouchables, are touched. Those outcasts from society are brought in and loved. It's radical And it made Jesus really unpopular with the religious elites. The story of Zacchaeus is a wonderful and unique example of the unseen being seen. 
Oh, and I forgot I have a PowerPoint, so I think I haven't, let's see if this works. Yeah, now you can see it on the PowerPoint as well. Um, so, this is Luke 19, and it's the story of Jesus and Zacchaeus. Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. There was a man there named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector in the region, and he'd become very rich. He tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd, so he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road, for Jesus was going to pass that way. When Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy, but the people were displeased. He has gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor, Lord. And if I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. And Jesus responded, Salvation has come to this home today. This man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save those who are lost. It's a fascinating story. And also the whole calling by name really fits in with the song earlier, so we totally coordinated that. Not really. Um, It's also a popular children's story, and it has a great song about it, which I've spared you today, but go look that up and you'll have it in your head for a week. Um, But what is amazing about this story is that Jesus saw Zacchaeus. He called him by name. He saw him as more than a dirty sinner and tax collector. He saw him as more than all that is bad about capitalism. He saw him in such a way that Zacchaeus is transformed by it. And when we are seen in that way that Jesus sees Zacchaeus, it can be transformative. And I found that in this community. It's the first time I've been in a Christian community and felt fully welcome and seen. It's been healing and restorative. It mends my cynicism and gives me hope. And this community has encouraged and loved me. And it's transformative because of the stories that I've heard. It's transformative because of the acceptance I've been offered. And then I draw strengths from this space, which gives me the energy to go out into less welcoming spaces. So Jesus sees Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus is transformed. So much so that he is then able to see others where he previously couldn't or wouldn't. Zacchaeus gives away half of his wealth and pays back people four times over. The people who he previously saw as a way to grow his wealth become people. And when you actually see people as fellow humans in all their complexity, I think it becomes harder to cause them harm. I also like this story because I don't often empathise with rich men, so (laughs) it's good to see that Jesus sees them as well. Um, But (laughs) I see that a lot with the queer community, not the rich men part, although some. Um, When people know and spend time with LGBTI plus people, it becomes harder to frame us as an issue or as a mere theology debate. Instead, we become real people who are beloved by God. Today at Pride, a lot of LGBTI plus people will be seen, but often we aren't or are reduced to stereotypes. And although I do love flannel, boots and glitter, sometimes I'll admit that stereotypes are not all that we are. Pride today is loud and glittery and maybe a little less revolutionary than it once was. But Pride was born from a protest, a protest where people who are tired of not being seen 
made themselves seen in courageous and bold ways. So I think we need to hold intention remembering the history of what has been overcome and celebrating our achievements today while also still recognising that we still have a ways to go. We have come a long way, and sometimes now I think it's easy to be convinced we're done, especially after same-sex marriage. Um, But Roxanne Gay has this excellent quote in her book, Bad Feminist, where she says, some women being empowered does not prove the patriarchy is dead, it proves some of us are lucky. And I think this can be applied to many other things like racism, homophobia, transphobia, biphobia, etc. Just because some queer people are accepted, normalised or successful now, doesn't mean that oppression is over for all. And the patriarchy and queerphobia is still alive and well. So people protest because they have not heard and are not fully seen as equals. And protests often upset people. But the people usually upset by protests often I don't think have truly experienced the feeling of being unheard and the suffering that, exco- that causes people to protest. Or perhaps a recent example is the name-calling of Christians in the No campaign. I don't advocate for calling bigots. I don't do it myself. I just find it unproductive. But I think it reminds me also of the imagery from the last series um, of us all sitting at a table at the end. I don't find that it leads towards that. But when people argue that names thrown around on both sides makes it an equal debate, I'm often frustrated because while calling people names is not seeing them as complex humans and can be hurtful, the queer community has quite literally been brutalised by the police over the years, has often been killed, has some of the highest rates of suicide and mental health problems still. So I'm not sure that these words are the same. Nearly 50% of trans people attempt suicide and bisexual people face anxiety and depression at rates even higher than lesbians and gays who still face them at two or three times the rate of the general population. So please forgive me when I care more about trans kids and gay kids and bi kids and intersex kids who are forced and unnecessary surgeries still to this day. I care more because they are called names far worse than homophobe or bigot and these names are far less deserved and with far worse impact. And so protest makes people feel uncomfortable. It upsets a lot of people and nowadays maybe it's a little easy to forget the history of pride as a protest but I think it's important to hold celebration and the history and the continuing protest intention. The first pride was a riot. It was not glitter and rainbows as it is today. It was bricks. It was begun by largely queer people of colour. Many of them were drag queens and trans females. It was not backed by large companies and the police did not walk in the parade. Queer people became visible and vulnerable and it was powerful. Audre Lorde says that, and I think I put this one up here, Oh, no, that's the next one, but close. That visibility which makes us most vulnerable is that which is the source of our greatest strength. I think I see this in pride, that what makes us vulnerable is brought to light and celebrated and embraced as a strength. And to quote her again, revolution is not a one-time event. It is becoming always vigilant for the smallest opportunity to make genuine change in established, outgrown responses. For instance, it is learning to address each other's differences with respect. We still have much to fight for today. There is revolutionising still to be done. Same-sex marriage may be legal, but as I said earlier, we still face a lot of discrimination. 
Queer people of colour are often even further marginalised as are Indigenous and LGBTI plus refugees. And again, to quote Audrey Lord, you do not have to be me in order for us to fight alongside each other. I do not have to be you to recognise our wars are the same. What we do is commit ourselves to some future that can include each other and to work toward that future with the particular strengths of our individual identities. And in order to do this, we must allow each other our differences at the same time as we recognise our sameness. I'll just read that last sentence again. We must allow each other our differences at the same time as we recognise our sameness. So when we allow and celebrate each other's differences while still recognising our sameness, I think that is a really wonderful way to see people. And so pride is a wonderful celebration of our diversity, but it started in Stonewall in 1970 as a riot. Mardi Gras in Sydney reached its iconic status also because of the police resistance it faced. The first march in 1978 was met with unexpected police violence. At this inaugural march, police swooped and violently arrested 53 men and women, many of whom were beaten in their cells. The first Pride March in Melbourne was in 1995, and it's been suggested that one of the reasons that the community felt they needed to express a show of pride was that just 18 months earlier, so this is like mid-90s, it's not that long ago, Victoria Police had detained 463 patrons of the gay nightclub Tasty, conducting public and invasive strip and cavity searches in one of Australia's most notorious instances of homophobic police brutality. And one of the earliest slogans of these marches and movements was out of the closet and onto the streets, and it's still used at protests today. In Melbourne, one of the most effective things the gay liberation movement did in the 70s was have a mass coming out and show people that they did know people who were queer. And I think the slogan really highlights how people want and need to be seen. As more and more people come out of closets, we are seen and represented better, and change can occur as we become more than stereotypes and abstract theologies or issues to be dealt with. Instead, we are friends and family. We are people who are known and seen. I'm going to take a quick drink of water and let you just... Simmer on something, I don't know. <laughs> Stew. <clears throat> okay. Now, I'm not going to argue that we throw bricks like at the first Stonewall or start massive protests in churches, but I think that theology at its best can challenge us and take us out of our comfort zones. Marcella Althaus Reed specialised in liberist, feminist and queer theology... She was also the first woman to be Professor of Theology at New College, University of Edinburgh. She often did what she referred to as indecent theology. It was theology that challenged people and made them uncomfortable. It challenged power structures. I'm not going to lie, her work is some of the hardest things that I ever read. Um, But when I can make out what she's saying, it's really great and powerful stuff. And to her, queer theology is representative of more than just LGBTI plus people. Instead, she argues that it creates a space for resistance to all standardised regimes of both church and state through recreation, reimagination, and a revisioning of how things are and could be. Seeing people can empower them. And theology that sees queer people creates space for real change, I think, as well. Althaus Reed refers to capital T theology, 
a theology that is done by mostly white men from a very traditional and potentially limited perspective that doesn't always see people who don't fit into their particular worldview. And she says this. Is it on the screen? Oh, have I gone too far? There we go. Sorry. Um, this is a scandal of what capital T theology has carefully avoided. God amongst the queer and the queer God present in God's self. God as found in the complexity of unruly sexualities and relationships of people. God as present in the viruptor of previously unrecognized paths of praxis. That is, paths covered with machetes in a jungle as paths of experience and of people at the margins usually are. What I think she is saying is that God doesn't just see the unseen but is there in and with the unseen. God stands alongside the unseen. And so when we refuse to see people who don't fit in with our worldview, I think we're also refusing to see God because they are also created in God's image and have much to give. And by excluding them, I think we lose a lot. And Dr. Cheryl B. Anderson argues that we've come to define ourselves by those we exclude. Yeah. Essentially, a true Christian, she says, is one who excludes these other perspectives as implied by these laws. In other words, the faith tradition itself has become defined by continuing those exclusions. Therefore, whether a contemporary Christian community is deemed orthodox, it's based on how stringently it has adhered to the particularities of the other. I met someone uh, recently who was um, <clears throat> in the process of being ordained to become a pastor. And I could tell he was like sussing out like what kind of a Christian I was. And so he was like, so how, you know, how did you grow up? I was like, oh, just like pretty, pretty standard Baptist. And he was like, affirming or not? And that was his question. He did, had no clue I was gay. Um, and that was his question for testing how orthodox I was. And I see it happen a lot. Um, and we saw that again with Eugene Peterson recently, a wonderful scholar who's put out literally dozens of books, wrote the message version um, of the Bible. Uh, and then he recently said that he would probably marry a man, or, uh, man and a man or a woman and a woman if they asked, um, if he was still a pastor. It was a very like theoretical thing. He was never going to do it. Um, and he had all of his books dropped from um, Christian bookstores until he eventually caved and came out and said that he wouldn't and marriages between a man and a woman. And so we see that it doesn't matter what else you've done. It's become a real litmus test for orthodoxy and for who's in and who's out. And we see it with, I know, quite a few pastors who have had to step down for it, regardless of what other things they have done or said. Um, but continuing on with, sorry, I went on a little tangent there. Um, continuing on with Dr. Cheryl B. Anderson, she also says that by hearing the voices of the marginalised, God's work of redemption and reconciliation continues in our midst. Uh, and she's drawing from 2 Corinthians 5, 16 to 21. So I thought I would read that. Hey. Um, I took it from the NIV, but I did change he to God. Um, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, a new creation has come. 
The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to God's self through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to God's self in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And God has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making God's appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made Christ who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. So we are called to be reconcilers, not counters of people's sins. But we can't be reconcilers if we don't see people. The people who Dietrich Bonhoeffer says that to these, the powerless and the disenfranchised, the very world belongs. And Dr. Anderson, I'm sorry I'm crediting her so much, but she's amazing, goes on to say that the Church of Jesus Christ is called to identify and stand in solidarity with the oppressed. The act of solidarity becomes the litmus test of biblical fidelity and the paradigm used to analyse and judge how social structures contribute to or efface the exploitation of the marginalised. To be apart from the marginalised community of faith is to exile oneself from the possibility of hearing and discerning the gospel message of salvation from the ideologies that mask power and privilege and the social structures responsible for their maintenance. I really like that litmus test a lot better. And the Rev Calvin Calloway says, oppression is oppression is oppression. Just because we're not the ones being oppressed now, do we not stand with those now? This is the biblical mandate. That's what Jesus is all about. And to go back to Ms. Althaus Reed, she argues that, and since when has God been a host of law and legality instead of justice? What I think, to summarise sort of what I've pulled from these theologians and thinkers and what they're saying, is that we find Jesus in the margins and that by seeing the unseen, I think we have the amazing opportunity to see Jesus and to stand alongside him and to take part in the work of reconciliation and reimagination. Thank you.